controversy over our land when people have seen a video of something and we immediately know that's wrong. That's wrong. But if this seen world is all there is, we can't make any sense of that. We, we have to ask, why do I feel like that is wrong? Now, if this seen world is all that there is, not only can we not take sense, uh, make sense of any moral knowledge, but we can't make sense of anything good either. We can't make sense of anything like pleasure or art or music, by the way. Uh, I'm a, a music person, so that's a subject for me. Um, I read an article with a professor of psychology, of psychology who, do, who does believe that this world is all there is and everything has a natural cause and everything is physical. And he loves, in this article I was reading, he was saying he loves to tweak his students by reading the beginning of, of a book by Francis Crick, who was the scientist who um, discovered DNA, by the way. Here's what, he loves to mess with his students by reading this quote. Here's what he says. He says, in his class, imagine being in his class, and he says this, You, your joys and your sorrows, your memories and your ambitions, your sense of personal identity and free will are, in fact, no more than the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules. Molecules. You are nothing but a pack of neurons. That's a direct quote from Francis Crick, the, dis- the, the discoverer of DNA. Okay, And this, of course... Um, is the case if there is no God. This is the explanation of why things are if there is no God. Everything you feel can be boiled down to chemistry. Everything. Chemistry is why you feel the way you feel, you're feeling right now. So the professor in this, he reads that quote, and then he says, most of my students, this is from the article I read, most of my students are very troubled when I tell them that love is on one level an evolutionary mechanism that ensures an inclination to invest in individuals suitable to help maximize one's fitness. And on another level, love is nothing but a consequence of appropriate amounts of oxytocin in women, vasopressin in men, released in conjunction with sexual satisfaction. That's what he says. That's why you're in love, people. Because of that. And he writes in this article that one young lady in his class said, that's just not acceptable. She was really troubled by it. She said, that's just not that's not acceptable. I want my boyfriend to love me on his own, not because his genes or chemicals are telling him to do so, but because of, of him and me, she says. And the professor just laughs at her, basically, and says, well, sorry, that's just not science. That's just not the way it is. And yet, according to others, like C.S. Lewis, he would say, this young woman's onto something. There's something that comes into us where we just know that can't be right. That can't be right. Lewis puts it better than I, than I... Let me just read this to you. He says, If you assume that nature is all that exists, that means you know that a meaningless play of atoms in space and time by a series of 100th chances has produced you. A conscious being that now knows that your own consciousness is an, accident, is an accidental result of the whole meaningless process and therefore itself is meaningless, though to you, alas, it feels great. It feels significant. It feels meaningful. Now, what do you do once you know this? If you've accepted this, that there is no God and everything is, a, is basically, your body is a machine just pumping out chemicals and that's what's making it do. How, what do you, how do you do? Well, you say, well, let's party. 
let's have a good time. There is no right or wrong. I can do whatever I want, right? Let's have pleasure. But here's the deal. Here's the problem. Here's what makes this so... Here's what, honestly, here's what nihilists know. Nihilists take it even further. You can't, ha- you can't be truly in love with a girl if you know and keep on remembering that and you believe that all the beauties of a person and character are accidents, are an accidental pattern of a collision of atoms that, resp- that respond to your makeup and your genetics. You can't get any pleasure from music if you know and remember that the air of significance is pure allusion to music. Can you imagine if, if you were moved by the music before the service and you believed it was just, well, that's just my chemicals make, making me propagate the species. That you can't enjoy a piece of art and derive meaning from it. It's as accidental as a big explosion. So every time pleasure tries to push you on, that's what pleasure is meant to do, according to the Bible, it's meant to push you on from um, like marigold sensuality into real warmth, enthusiasm, purpose, all of those things. You're forced to deny that. You're forced to actually, your system says no, because meaning is meaninglessness. The, the Old Testament has a whole book about this where the writer says, meaninglessness, meaninglessness, all things are meaningless. He's saying, from, a, from the point of view, if there, from observation only, where there is no God, from just what I can see, there's nothing behind the scenes, meet, what's the point of anything? And then you begin to realize that this world cannot be all there is. You start asking questions. As soon as you say... As soon as you say that there is a right or a wrong, as soon as you proclaim it's better to love than to hate, as soon as you walk through your neighborhood and you see the signs, in this house we believe that love is for all people and there's this whole list of things, ethical things that they believe and put a sign in their yard about. As soon as you say that, you've got to start asking some questions. How do I know that? It's called epistemology. How do you come to know what you know? How do I know that? How do I know that it's better to love than to hate? Where am I getting that? And then realize that this seen world, if you realize that this seen world is all there is, those statements, which of course are absolutely true, love is powerful, they make no sense if there is no God. So the first layer, you might say, in faith is to reason, is to think, is to ask questions is to ask good questions. Faith is more than reasoning and thinking, but it's not less. Faith helps you make sense of things. In other words, you can't have faith unless the things that the Bible tells you about God and the unseen make sense. First of all, the Bible's got to make sense. So the unseen world has to make sense of the seen world, and you can't have faith unless what the Bible tells you about the unseen world makes sense. But that's not all faith is, and it can't stop there. Look at verse, uh, look at verse 4 through, let's go through verse 8. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it, he being dead, still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is. Very logical. 
and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. If you're coming to God, you've got to believe those, those basic premises, that he's there and that he's, he can be found, that he wants to be revealed, that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. Why would you come to God if you didn't really believe that? Very lo- I'm just pointing out how logical this is. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became the heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. Now, what you see in this list of people, you have Noah, you have Abraham, later on you've got Moses, some real, something extremely interesting. Most people tend to think of faith as a lack of questioning. Don't question these things. Just believe it. You know, that's kind of what you think. What you, just have faith. Don't ask questions. And in a place like Seattle, people of faith are considered people who don't ask a lot of questions. They just blindly believe what's been told them, they say. But that's not what the Bible has to say about faith at all. Look at all these examples. Really interesting. Take Moses, for example. He's doing really well. He's the prince of Egypt. The world is his oyster. He's got great education. He's got a place of power. And yet, something comes in and begins to disturb him. And what does Moses do? He begins to ask questions. He starts asking questions, and the next thing you know, those questions disrupt his reality, and before you know it, he's identifying with the slaves and with the poor. And he's standing up for them, advocating for them. Abraham has a great life in Ur of the Chaldees. It's a fertile place. He's got a prominent family. His whole life is played out in front of him. He's got safety, security, status. He's got everything. And then something comes into his life. A call from God comes into his life, disturbs him, and he starts asking questions. And the next thing you know, he's running off into the wilderness, leaving it all behind, running it off to where he doesn't even know where he's going. The point is that faith... Faith is a personal encounter with God. That's the only thing that makes sense of it. It's not abstract. It's a personal encounter with a real person that changes everything. It's a call. And that's what all of these names have in common. A call came into Noah's life. A call came into Moses' life and into Abraham's life. It's God saying, I want you personally. This is one of the things that I hammer on. You know, I hammer on it all the time. Um, At some point, it's got to happen. At some point, it's got to happen for you. At some point, it's got to happen for your kids. God, they've got to sense that God is coming for them personally. At some point, it, it is not a math equation. It's not just reason oh, this makes sense. It's, it, at some point, it crosses a threshold and becomes personal. I'll never forget it for me. I was on a camping trip. I was listening to a, a sermon, and I had grown up in Christianity. I understood Christianity. It made sense to me, and I would, even, I would have even called myself a Christian. But at some point, when I was listening, listening to this sermon, all of a sudden... It was like everyone disappeared 
It was like the pastor didn't matter. And it was like I felt another presence there. And I felt like his attention was trained onto me. Like the God of the cosmos had taken notice of Mike and said, I want you. It became personal at that point, you see. And I began to ask questions. And that's one of the main things that you know when, you've, when, you've, when you enter a relationship with God. You'll notice when the call comes into your life, what does it look like to be called? What does it mean to be called by God? Well, one thing you'll notice is that you'll start, your reality has been disturbed. Things don't, things that, you're now allowing yourself to question things that maybe you didn't allow yourself to question before. That's one of the ways you know you're being called. It makes you say, what am I doing this for? Why do I have this job? Why, do, why am I living for what I'm living for? Why do, I, why, do I, why do I want to make all this money? What's the purpose of my life? Why should I do what I'm doing? Just because they said so? What's happening here? What is the truth? What should I believe? Is there purpose for my life? Those things will start to come into your heart and into your mind and matter to you. To me, one of the most interesting and ironic examples of this is um, a man named Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Uh, there's a great documentary um, on him that I was watching. He was a nominal Christian, grew up in a Christian culture. Um, he, had, he had the rational part down. It made, Christianity made sense to his brain. But he had, he had not yet had an encounter with God. Very intellectual man. He was a physician. He was very young. He was extremely successful. He's this up-and-coming physician in London. He was on his way to the top. He had everything out before him. And a friend, um, a friend who was already on the top of the medical profession, went through a great tragedy. Um, this woman that he was going to marry became sick, and she actually died. And this doctor, after this woman died, came to see Lloyd-Jones to process it with him, I guess. And he came and sat, they sat by a fire together. Lloyd-Jones tells this story. And without say, uh, saying a word, they stared into the fire for two hours. Two men, one that had just had this tremendous loss in his life, and they just stared for two hours. And Lloyd-Jones had no problem that the man was despondent because he figured out, well, he just lost this, the love of his life. But as Lloyd-Jones watched the man staring into the fire, that's when Lloyd-Jones heard this call. Here's what he says. He says this. He's sitting there doing nothing, just staring in a fire. He says, it shook me to the foundations. I saw the vanity of all human greatness. I realized that all the success in the world, all the status in the world, all the education in the world, all the money in the world was insufficient to face life. It didn't make me stronger. It didn't help me through trouble. He wasn't looking at the man as a weakling or anything like that, but suddenly, in a moment, he hears this call that causes him to question. Does this even work? What am I doing? Now, what are we talking about here? I'm saying to you, I think Martin Lloyd-Jones would say to you if he were here, this text is saying to you that it's not enough to believe in a kind of general way. That's not faith. That's not the kind of faith that the Bible's talking about. That's not... 
pistis in the Greek, when the Bible uses that, it's not talking about ascending to doctrine and understanding it and even signing your name and acknowledging it. It's, it's, there, it that's involved, but it's much more than that. It's a personal encounter with an actual person. You've got to be called. You've got to sense God calling you, drawing you. There has to be a call. There has to be a sense that God has come into your life personally and said, I want you, I want you to follow me. Now, what does that feel like? What does that even feel like? Well, um, even though you might have already known this with your head, it suddenly presses onto your spirit. All the things that you've known become real in that moment. It's an either-or, it's an extreme. Either there is no God and everything is meaningless, or there is a God, and if there is a God, then everything changes. And you find that in the Bible when you follow Jesus. Jesus left people with an either-or. Either I'm going to follow this guy, especially when it dawned on them who he really was. Either I'm going to follow him, or I'm going to go away sad because I love the world, I love this, the riches of life too much to give it up. There was no in-between. And if there is a Jesus Christ who came into the world, how can I come to grips with someone who gave himself utterly for me if I don't give myself utterly for him? Honestly, how do, you, how do we reconcile? If it, that is the God of Christianity. The God of Christianity is a God who came and gave himself utterly for you. How can we reconcile that belief, if that's what we really believe, How can we reconcile that and just give him a quarter of who we are or half of who we are or some of it? It demands utter devotion. And this becomes the foundation of life. Look at verse 8. It says, by faith Abraham obeyed. What else could he do? When he, he obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob and the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations. This is, it dawned on me. I've read that verse a billion times. But it dawned on me by implication, he's saying that there is no city here that has foundations. I don't know, that blew my mind today. As I was going over this again, I was thinking, wait a second. For he waited, if he waited for the city that has foundations, then it defines it, whose builder and maker is God. Do you know that once Abraham got the call, that's Genesis 12, he's a believer now, he knows God, is everything okay? Is everything fine now? No, are you kidding? He's just, he's just getting started. <laughs> this is just the beginning. Let me tell you the rest of how his life goes. God tells, him, God tells him to leave his home. Where? God says, I'll tell you later, just go. <laughs> so he arrives and God says, eventually settle down. And Abraham says, when? I'll tell you later, just wander for now. Just kind of drift and wander. God says, I'm going to give you a child. I'm going to give you a son. And Abraham, this old man, says, how? I'm 99. My wife is 90 years old. How in the world is that going to happen? And God says, I'll tell you later. Just wait. 
And finally, and this is the way Abraham, this is like a trend in Abraham's life. Uncertainty, really. Finally, God says, Abraham, take your son, your only son whom you love. Take him on top of that mountain and sacrifice him. And Abraham says, why? And God says, I'll tell you later. Just start heading up that mountain for right now. What's going on here? Well, let me tell you what's going on here. Verse 10 in our text says that Abraham came to see that this world has no foundations. What a significant statement. This world has no foundations. This world, he was looking for the city with foundations. In other words, this world doesn't have it. He was looking for an otherworldly place. He was sojourning. And what that means is that if, if, the, if the foundations of your life is your family, well, they're leaving you. Happy Father's Day. It's graduation time. Parenting, someone once said, parenting is just a series of goodbyes. It's really true. Eventually, every single person you love is going to die if you're lucky, if you're lucky enough to live that long. Man, if one thing that this last two years has shown us with the pandemic and everything else is that this world has no foundations. It can change just like that. If you build your life on some... Uh, intellectual or lasting intellectual cause. A hundred years ago, all the beliefs that the intelligence people believed is now looked on as embarrassing. You can actually look at the Seattle Times 60 years, 60 years ago and you read what was in the Times and what we believed back then as a culture. It's laughable. Six, just 60 years ago, 40 years ago, it's embarrassing what we believed then. Everything's changing. Over and over and over again, you're, coming to, you're, you're, you're going to come into a crisis in which to obey God means to lose something in which otherwise you would have made it your foundation. That's a walk of faith. Over and over and over again, you're going to come into a crisis where something is going to be taken out of your hands that you're going to make your, your stability, your value, your center of gravity was going to be centered on that. And God says, nope, keep going, keep moving. Where? I'll tell you later. That's what God was doing with Abraham. We build our lives on, here we build our lives on cultural consensus. We build our lives on public opinion, on family, economic settledness, economic security, all of those things. And every place God was saying, obey me and leave that behind. Don't you dare not set up shop there. He was answering the call. What was Abraham doing? Answering the call away from security. Isn't that fascinating? Away from security. Now, why is God doing that? We're devastated by this. We don't like this because we build our lives on things that we want to believe are going to keep us safe. But they're going to go. They're sinking sand. They're not the rock. And God is over and over again saying, don't build your life there. Don't put your life there. Don't build your life on that. Don't put the center of your soul there. Don't put the center of your weight on that. Don't, because it's shifting sand. Don't. You got a promotion, it could go. You have health, it could leave. 
even our own health. We are wrinkling and fading away as we speak. Look at pictures of yourself just a year ago or two years ago. You're different. There's no foundations there. And God is in the business of showing us that. And at every point in your life, you're to obey Him. To put Him first means to walk away from something in this world in which you would normally build your security. That's what it means. It's a mercy, actually. It's an opportunity opportunity to become slowly, bit by bit, a person of durability. How can you handle the pain in this life? This is the Bible's answer. Don't put your, don't put your hopes here. Don't do it. Now, some of you must be thinking, you have to be thinking, I don't know if I can do that. <laughs> you know, How in the world could I possibly do this? I could never be this kind of sold-out person. It sounds impossible. And yet, did you know that Abraham felt the same way? And probably asked the same questions. After one of the times that God was making his call on Abraham's life, Abraham actually said, quote, Oh Lord, how can I know? How can I know that this is true? Which I think he means, basically, how am I supposed to trust you right now? How can I trust you? And God says, and this is shocking for us because we don't do this anymore, but God says, cut some animals in half. We go... When we hear that, we go, what in the world? But Abraham would have immediately known what God was saying because in those days, when you made a contract with somebody or a covenant with somebody, you would sacrifice animals. You would cut some animals in half. And if you had some solemn solemn covenant that you made with somebody, you'd cut an animal in half and you would walk in between the pieces with your companion hand in hand and you would recite your side of the agreement. So, you know... If Carol sells her condo, she will walk, she would, she would cut a, a cow in half and hold hands with the person that's, that's doing the condo and they would say, she would say, I'm going to give you this condo if you pay me this amount of money. And that person would say, I'll get, I will take this condo when I pay you this amount of money. And what basically they were saying was, they were saying, if I, fall, if I don't do my end of the bargain, my fate will be that of these animals. May I become like these. It was a way of saying, okay, this strengthens my, this, my word is my bond. You imagine getting married in those days. I don't think they did that at wedding ceremonies, but for other things they did. By walking between the pieces, you were saying, this day I make this promise, and if I don't keep my word, may the worst kind of consequence happen to me. But so Abraham, he would have known exactly what God was saying when he says, get some animals and cut them in half. But to Abraham's shock, two things happen. One is, God appears as a smoking pillar and passes between the pieces himself without Abraham. And as he's going, he says, he speaks, he says, I will be your God. And secondly, the second crazy thing that happened or unorthodox thing that happened, God never asked Abraham to go through the pieces at all. He doesn't ask Abraham to participate. And Abraham suddenly must have realized in that moment that God was saying, if I don't keep my end of the bargain, I will pay the penalty. I will be torn to pieces, Abraham. But also, Abraham, if you don't keep your end of the bargain... 
I will also pay the penalty. I will be shred to pieces. I will be torn up. And therefore, Abraham, no matter how much you lapse or relapse, I will never stop loving you. I will never take my blessing away from you. No matter how bad it is, no matter how many times you do it, I will, it's not based on you, Abraham. I'm going to walk through this by myself. I'll swear by my own self. Jesus says in John chapter 8, I love this quote, it gives me chills, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Jesus made that crazy statement. Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And what that can only mean is that when Abraham got that promise, he said, I can trust you because this is a God, this is a God of grace. This is before the law was given to Moses. God was establishing people who say the God of the Old Testament is not the same as the New. This is before the law came, came to Moses. Before all of those things came, God was establishing himself early in the narrative, Genesis 12 and 15, as a God of grace. This means that God is a God of grace. How can this be? Jesus says that Abraham was... How can it be? Jesus said, Abraham was looking forward to me. Galatians chapter 3 says that God preached the gospel to Abraham. He was looking. He knew, okay, someone must be coming. These all died in faith, verse 13 says, not having received the promise, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed them that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. So here's the point. If Abraham had the power to live this kind of big life that he lived just in anticipation of the grace of God, how much more can you and I endure these times because we're living, we're looking directly at the grace of God? We know about Jesus. We know about the cross. Jesus Christ is the ultimate security. This is an invitation to transfer, to pull up the stakes of your security from your job, your career, your money, your future, whatever it might be, and put them on the foundation of Jesus because he's the only one that's going to stay. That's what this is. To evaluate, when we sing the song, my heart will sing no other name but Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. What we're doing there, we're saying, I'm going to pull up stakes of the things that I am putting my value in, the center of gravity of my life. I'm putting value in my friendships, my security, my social standing, my job, my career, money, retirement, on and on and on and on and on it goes. I'm, when we say, my heart will sing no other name, we say, no, I'm repenting of that in terms of a place of security, and I'm going to put my security in Jesus. Because how can I not reconcile with a God who gave himself utterly for me if I don't give myself utterly to him? And that's how you become a person of greatness. Because in this life, we're wearing, several of us are wearing masks. We would not have predicted that three years ago. Even a place to meet. I mean, before, being able to go to church was a sure and certain thing. You know what I'm saying? The American dream. All of those things. The things that make us feel so secure. I I dare not stand here and say, 
That's how we know we're safe. I can't do that. In a sense, who is Jesus? The story of Abraham tells the story of Jesus. In a sense, the Father came to Jesus. Do you understand? Jesus received a call. You know that. The Father came to Jesus and said, if these people are going to be saved, Jesus, in a sense, it's my own, you're going to need to get out. You're going to need to leave prosperity. Jesus lived in his Father's house. He had ultimate security, ultimate status, right? God, King of the universe. He's the ultimate. Doesn't need a thing. And the Father, in a sense, says, if these people are going to be saved, you're going to need to lose all of that. You're going to have to get out of your Father's house, out of your security, out of your glory, out of your invulnerability, and become vulnerable. The story of Abraham tells the story of Jesus It's a micro story that points to the bigger story. Jesus heard the ultimate call away away from ultimate security and he left. It was the abyss of suffering that he entered into. We know that in the Christmas story. It was the abyss of suffering. The, The infinite abyss of suffering of the cross and he threw himself into it for you and for me. Jesus isn't asking us to do anything that he hasn't done himself. After we know that, and this explains church history, why the church was able in the first, first, second, and third century, why they were able to sacrifice so much. Unprecedentedly a, a, a lot. They were able to suffer so much. Why? Because they just saw, they were closer to the, the, the Christ event. They were closer to the cross. They saw and believed in a God that left all security and gave it all up for them, all of his riches, so that they could become poor. And Christians didn't look at the cross as an event that made sure they went to heaven. They looked at it also as a template for which they lived their own lives. If I'm going to help bring the kingdom of God, we've turned it into, we'll go to the kingdom of God someday when we die if we believe in Jesus. Foreign concept to the Bible, let me just tell you. The Bible would say, although it is certainly that, we are going to go to heaven once we die, but the Bible would say Jesus came so that we can participate in the cross and bring the kingdom of heaven here. How? He who wants to follow me must take up his cross daily, every day, and follow me. Christians live a life, a practice, a participation of dying to self, That brings newness of life to our families, to our marriages, to our relationships, to our communities. And that enables us to die to ourselves more. That gives us newness of life. That enables us to keep dying to ourselves. And it becomes a way of life, a rhythm. And when we think of the cross as some past event that just makes us go to heaven when we die, it it takes the power out of that and we become largely impotent as Christians in society and in our families. There's a major disconnect. The early church did it because they saw it happen. (laughs) They saw Jesus who didn't have to, rich, become poor to make us rich spiritually. And it gave them grit. 